Well, we are in the midst now, really, of a Sarasim Echuva, the 10 days of repentance. And um, we just uh, left, today was Sem Gedalia, and we just left Rosh Hashanah. Uh, but it's worthwhile, you know, especially in every holiday, it's always worthwhile going over some of the major ideas of a holiday. So I thought that's what I would do to put us in that <clears throat> frame of mind about the holiday itself, you know. And Rosh Hashanah itself, which I once mentioned, uh, but it's worthwhile to, to rethink these ideas. And Rosh Hashanah, most people don't realize that Rosh Hashanah is not really a personal holiday. That's not its purpose is to judge each individual Jew, no matter who they are, you know. And people assume, well, they say it's a Yom Hadin, it's a day of judgment, and therefore people assume that they are being judged, you see, to see what they did. Uh, but uh, there are many uh, difficulties, there are many questions that one can ask about Rosh Hashanah, which in many ways uh, doesn't make any sense. So that's how we begin to see that Rosh Hashanah is not what we think it is. And what do I mean? Okay. First question is, how could you have a Yom Adin once a year? Could you imagine if the courts were opened in the city once a year? And the rest of the year, they're closed. I mean, crime would be all over the place, which it actually almost is. You know, <clears throat> but how in the world can you only have a judgment day only once a year? Doesn't really make sense, does it? Truth is, mankind, or the Jewish people certainly, but mankind, should be judged, right? Each individual, every day. In fact, the Gemara does say that. That in Adam Nidaim Cholyoim, that a man, a person, is judged every day, and that makes sense, because every day there has to, you have to see what are the, the effect of a person's actions, and to evaluate it. You see, so that's a judgment. So then, what does it mean that Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin? That's a very important question. Uh, another question is, Yom Hadin, a judgment day, can be done any day of the year. Why is it done on the first day of Tishrei? You see, now we know that the first day of Tishrei is when Odom Horishim was created. Right? That's why it's Rosh Hashanah. But why is Rosh Hashanah, which is the first day that Odom Horishim was created, right? Why is that on the first day of Tishrei? Or, in other words, why is Yom Hadin, Judgment Day, on the day he was created? Truth is, it could have been on any day, you know. So what is the meaning, like I said, that Judgment Day is on the first day of Tishrei when the Odomarishan was created? <coughs> so that's a real, a very important question. Then it says that everything is judged, you know. In the, the prayer of Unusana Toikev, you know, which points out to the awesomeness of the day, everything is judged, you see. Animals are judged. Angels are judged. So the question is, why would that happen? Because they don't have any real free will, you see. So judgment only makes sense if the person or the thing that you're judging, evaluating, is, has free will. But if you don't have free will, how could you judge anything? That doesn't really make any sense. You see, so that's another very difficult idea to understand. Then what's interesting is just the way we go about celebrating Rosh Hashanah. Now, we know Rosh Hashanah is a Yom Tov. It's a holiday, right? It's a celebration. So when you come home, you have everything set out. It's all beautiful. 
right? Uh, the table is all set. You bring out all the uh, good food. You see. <coughs> and what doesn't make sense is if Rosh Hashanah is Yom Hadin and we are judged in terms of life and death, why would anybody celebrate that day with a festive meal? That certainly doesn't make any sense. In other words, when you look at what's going on, the actions that people take, it doesn't look at all like they're afraid, right? That they are afraid because it's a judgment day of life and death. So how do we align the behavior of Jewish people with what is happening on that day? It's what's called incongruent in English. Uh, so that is the question, you see. Then we have other ideas, you know. We have the concept um, that we say verses in Musaf of Malchiois, where we have verses, Psukim, that God is a king, Zichroinus, we ask God to remember, you know, uh, the things that were good. And Shefurais, we have Psukim that talk about the Shefur. So why do we have those types of psukim? Then, of course, one of the greatest mysteries of all is the shofar. Why do we blow shofar? <clears throat> you know, I mean, it's certainly interesting to hear, but it's the mitzvah, it's the key mitzvah, right? The shofar, <clears throat> to hear the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. That is the key mitzvah. <coughs> what does that have to do with Yom Hadin? You know, I mean, you could give different ideas, you know, uh, in terms of a shofar. Uh, there's a Rav Sadia going that gives ten reasons that the reason why you blow shofar. But in the end, it's still a mystery. You know, the shofar has to obviously, you know, really perform some tremendous act and that is why it's so incredibly important to blow shofar and the question then is of course why and also the sounds of a shofar the Gemara says <clears throat> is really the sounds of crying you see the sounds of crying because all the sounds of a shofar a whale which is a tekiah <clears throat> a shvarim, which is like a sigh, and then a staccato cry, which is a truer. These are all sounds of crying. So the question would be, why does the sounds of a shofar have to imitate the way a person cries? Then it says in the Gemara <clears throat> that for different things, the sultan is confused you know, in terms of the shofar. He's confused. So the, the question is, why would he be confused? You know, the Sutton has a very profound IQ. I'm sure he knows that on Rosh Hashanah they blow shofar. So why would he be confused? And then you have the Kriya which is the Akedah. You see, the uh, binding of Yitzchak. Why is that read on Rosh Hashanah? And of course we could say, well, Avram Avinu had tremendous merit because he sacrificed Yitzchak. But how does the merit of somebody last for 4,000 years? <coughs> because that's when it happened, 4,000 years ago, basically. So why are we still getting merit from Akedah, you see? So these are the questions that one can ask about uh, Rosh Hashanah. And based on what we know about it, Yom Hadin, Judgment Day, they don't seem to add up really. It's still a mystery, you see. So how do we really understand this? Well, the way to understand this is to understand the entire objective of creation which we know goes by one word, tikkun. 
Tikkun means to rectify, to correct, to restore, to remedy. That's really the objective of creation. What the Rabbanisham decided to do is to create a universe in which he would conceal himself, his presence. Actually, he would conceal the relationship that he has with the creation. And he would create a person and he would expect that person to bring him back, to come back into creation and to reveal himself. That's what God really wants. God conceals himself and he wants a person to do something, a task, to bring him back. That's the essential idea. So how does God perform that? Well, what he does is he takes that individual, let's call it the neshama, the soul, and he surrounds it with a barrier which does not allow that individual to perceive anything beyond the barrier. So he takes a person and he puts him, inserts him in a physical body. And the entire circumstances, environment of that person is physical. And whoever has a physical body cannot perceive anything spiritual at all. <clears throat> and that is an impenetrable, impenetrable barrier that prevents this individual from seeing or understanding God. Except, but, but not directly, but except through reasoning, you see. <clears throat> so what God wants is this individual basically to remove the barrier. And if he does that, then God will reappear. <clears throat> because what keeps God hidden, you see, is the barrier. It's not God. And when that barrier is physical, then God is concealed, you see. So he wants that person to remove the barrier, and then God will reappear. And that's called the tikkun, because that person has uh, remedied or rectified the problem of the universe where <clears throat> the true nature of God and his relationship with the world is concealed. And this person does the tikkun, which he rectifies that situation. It's like a repairman. And all of a sudden, as a result of the fact that the person removes the barrier, God now becomes revealed. You see. <clears throat> Now, the way he does that, we know, is that God created the entire creation employing ten forces. <clears throat> and these forces are called spheres. And depending on their output, that depends on what they can do. Now, these spheres are, we don't really know what they are, but they are forces that are existentially almost unlimited in their power because God gives them that power, those forces. And they create reality, you see. <clears throat> so they begin to create a higher reality where God is revealed. But their output is diminished. You know, it's like a light bulb that's 1,000 watts and they begin to diminish the light bulb, so it gets darker. Well, these spheres also diminish in their output, and ultimately they create different realities, the lowest of which, basically, is the reality of Geshem, which is uh, the physical world, the entire universe, and that's what they do. They diminish in their output, and as a result of that, the world or what they create doing that becomes more and more physical and it becomes a tremendous barrier. And that barrier envelops the neshama.
and therefore it is now uh, supremely tested. And what God wants is that neshama should to do certain actions that will actually begin to reverse the diminishment of the spheres, and they will then uptake their power, put forth much more divine energy, <clears throat> and then the, the physical universe begins to change. Yeah, it actually becomes transformed, you see. <clears throat> and, uh, and that all depends on the actions of the neshamas, these uh, souls, you see. And what happens is that, is that the physical universe transforms back into a spiritual force, the physical, and as a result of that, that barrier is removed. And all of a sudden, this physical world now becomes spiritual, right? You see. <clears throat> and that means is that there's no more barrier between the neshama, the individual. There's no more barrier at all that prevents him from seeing God. That's the ultimate tachlis, which means objective purpose of this world, is that an individual should be tested <clears throat> and requested to turn up the energy of the spheres and to remove the barrier, and to remove the barrier. And as a result of that, he reintroduces a different type of reality, and that reality is completely spiritual, you see, and that reality, which is spiritual, will remain forever. And that is the reality called Oilam Habo. Oilam Habo, the future world. <clears throat> and that's basically the task of man. Now it's the task of the Jews. And that is called the Tikkun. That is called the Tikkun. <clears throat> And that, that's exactly what God wants. See? So therefore, mankind has a task, right? He has a task, and that is to ultimately remove the barrier, you see, that separates him from God. Now, he does that based on one idea. <clears throat> Two things. To what extent will you behave or act in a manner which is consistent with a belief that God is the source of everything. What is that called? That's called a mitzvah. A mitzvah is a commandment where a person does that indicates that he believes that God is the source of everything and therefore he wants to do the will of God. You see, <clears throat> and when he does that, right, then that is the major, uh, major idea to remove the barrier, you see, is to do the mitzvah, which I said is basically his testimony that he believes that God is the source of everything, and therefore only the will of God should be adhered to, and that's what he demonstrates. <clears throat> so measure for measure... Since you believe that God is a source, you will now be able to experience God as the source because you will now affect the barrier, the physical barrier itself. Now, a second way he does that, which I had mentioned, tshuva, if a person repents, which means that <clears throat> when he sinned and he did his own will, right, then what he really was saying is I am somebody, and therefore I can do what I want. Right? That's a sin. Because it, it demonstrates his belief that he also is an independent of God. Now, when he does tshuva, which means he repents, then he changes his mind. He regrets the actions that he did. <clears throat> therefore, he regrets the statement that that implies, the sin implies. So tshuva also demonstrates 
this person's belief that God is the source of everything. And then ultimately there's a third way which is called Yisurin or suffering. That also demonstrates <clears throat> that God is the source of everything. So those are the three mechanisms by which a person can increase the energy, the divine energy of the spheres to remove the barrier that separates him from God. You see? And that is called the Tikkun, the rectification. And that's basically what it's all about. So therefore, if you think about that, Tikkun is the business. This is the objective that God wants. And the Jews are tested on this. That's what happens. Now, obviously, <clears throat> if somebody has a certain objective to accomplish, right, then he wants to evaluate that. That's what he wants to do. He wants to see, well, how's it doing? Now, based on that, how it's doing, he's going to make adjustments. You know, if a person has a business and it's there to make money, he's going to have some type of evaluation where he wants to see, am I making money or not? And he's going to want to check out all the different departments of his business to see if, he's, if it's happening. So it's really a, an evaluation. Now, within the context of the overall business, right, he judges, evaluates each person's or each employee's contribution to that. Is that guy doing his job for the overall purpose of, of uh, making the money? You see, <clears throat> so the primary activity of the boss is to evaluate the business. The secondary idea is, is each person's contribution to this. Is that being successful? Now, if it is, if the business is making money, right, then what God will do is keep things the way they are. But what happens if it's not? Then person will readjust. He has to readjust in order to make sure that he can make money. Same thing with the tikkun process. If the Jews are doing the tikkun, fine. So that will continue and everybody will maintain their particular contribution to the Tikkun process. But what happens if the Tikkun is not happening? Instead of Jews doing the mitzvahs, they do sins, which is kilko, which is damage. So therefore, God has to readjust, right? He has to readjust the direction of the Tikkun in, in that sense. And he has to readjust each person's assignment, or contribution to the Tikkun process, you see. So each person is evaluated based on the Tikkun itself, primarily. And secondarily, right, his contribution to that Tikkun. Now that's the problem, because if God feels you're not doing your job, or you're contributing in a negative way, then he's going to change your job. And the change itself may reflect a real damaging idea. You may all of a sudden, for instance, let's assume you're wealthy and you're not doing the job. So what God may do is make you poor or substantially reduce your income. You see, because maybe in that way God sees that you can contribute to the Tikkun process by being poor, because every situation brings a specific situation, you see, that will contribute in some way to the Tikkun process. Now, of course, we don't want that. <clears throat> Remember, every person's situation must contribute to the Tikkun process, but that could be on a continuum. You know, rich people contribute one way, Poor people contribute another way. Healthy people contribute one way. 
sick people contribute a, another way, you see. <clears throat> and it's all like that. Social status contributes one way. Somebody who has an inferior social status contributes another way, you see. So we see there's a tremendous amount of flexibility and variation in the assignments that are given to people. But in the end, what's evaluated is the tikkun itself. Is it happening or not? And if it's happening, is it happening on time? You see, because God must end the entire tikkun process, right, before year 6000. He only gave from Avroma Vino, or actually from other Mauritian, I only gave the whole Tikkun process 6,000 years to be completed, to be, uh, to be done. Uh, actually, what he wants to do is have the process continue <clears throat> until before the year 6,000, which is the English year 2240, you see. So the Jewish people have to complete the Tikkun for whatever time, long before, in a certain sense, long before the year 6000 or the English year 2240. Because God wants this world to enjoy the Tikkun process results. He doesn't want to go to the end and then automatically end the physical world and begin another world. No. What God wants to do for many reasons, He wants to introduce in this world, a physical world, right, <clears throat> a utopia where you actually can live in a physical world and enjoy the fruits of your work. The Tikkun process, right. And now we know that's called the Messianic era. He wants everybody to enjoy <clears throat> Tikkun in the physical world and not have to wait until the world is destroyed or transformed and then to enjoy the Tikkun process, which means to cling to God and be attached to God in a spiritual world. You see, that's what he wants. That is why there's a messianic era, because God wants the Tikkun process to be uh, present, you know, while we're all physical. You see, and that's the whole concept, like I said, of the messianic process. And that is an era, or that is a time period, that we cannot even imagine what this world will look like, even though the world will be physical. You see, <clears throat> it'll be physical and so on. Of course, it'll be also supernatural, because that's what the Tikkun process ultimately brings. Supernatural. When things occur which never happened before. They happened before because they were necessary to bring about the Tikkun. For instance, it was necessary to have death, you see. It was necessary to have sickness. It was necessary to have suffering. All of this was needed in order to enable the Jewish people to do the Tikkun. But once the Tikkun has been complete in the physical world, then you don't need death. You don't need illness, disease. You don't need suffering. You don't need any of this stuff. And that's what's so incredible. So the Tikkun process that is manifest in the physical world is the Messianic era, you see. <clears throat> and it is an era of which we cannot even begin to imagine. The unbelievable glory the majesty of that world, you see. And that's really what we want. We're hoping that God does do that speedily, change the world, even as a physical world, that he will demonstrate <clears throat> what it means that God now merges or integrates with mankind. What does that even mean? While the universe exists, as a physical universe. And therefore, there are many things that have to happen which will. So this Yom HaDin, which happens once a year, and that's why it happens once a year, because you don't evaluate a person's behavior 
right, every day, uh, what you do is you, you evaluate the tikkun itself once a year, and then you institute changes. Therefore, the tikkun itself is evaluated once a year, you see. This is what happens on Rosh Hashanah. Yom Hadin happens on Rosh Hashanah. When did, you, when did the Tikkun process begin? Well, it began when Odom Harishan was created, which is Aleph Tishrei. So obviously that's a, a very good time to initiate an evaluation period. It's on the day that he was created. Because that's when the business of Tikkun begins, because without Odom, there's no Tikkun. So therefore, on Aleph Tishrei, you have Yom Adin, because that's when it started, you see. And since everything has to be evaluated, everything, even if they don't have any free will, is evaluated. But if they have no free will, they're not evaluated because they have caused certain damages. No, they are evaluated to determine where will they be placed, what assignment will they be given in order to advance the tikkun process. Uh, so that's what happens to them, and so on. God decides that a country has to be judged and it's very evil. So maybe he'll bring a, a locust swarm that envelops the entire country. So therefore, the locusts are judged to form a swarm to go over that country to destroy all the crops, you see. Now, it's not because the locusts did something bad. It's because that's now necessary, Right? to advance the Tikkun process. Um, so this is basically what happens, you see. That's really what Yom Hadin, what Rosh Hashanah really is, you see. Now, what God could have done is he, he would evaluate this by himself. He doesn't have to tell anybody at all. It's like a boss comes into his business, right, and he can evaluate it. He sits down in his office and he evaluates it without telling anybody. God doesn't want to do that. What God wants to do is tell the Jewish people what he's doing because he's hoping by telling them, by the way, I'm going to evaluate the whole creation and you are included because all of you are assigned to advance the, the Tikkun process of creation. I'm going to tell you about it. Why? <clears throat> so you can influence the verdict. You see, I want to give you an opportunity to actually influence the verdict. So therefore, God informed the Jewish people of what he was about to do. You see, on the first day of Tishrei, when man was created. That's why. Because God doesn't want to, you know, surprise them and all of a sudden they find themselves suffering because of what they did. No. You can do tshuva. You can repent, and therefore God will judge you in a positive way, you see, and he will improve your assignment, you see, or maintain it, or whatever, if you influence the verdict, right, by acknowledging that God is the master, the melech, the king, and you're going to do his will. That's what he does. So he informs everybody. And that is why we know about Yom Hadim. But there's a big problem. Because once, once God informs everybody about what he's about to do, so then it becomes a public judgment day. And we know that whenever there's a judgment day, the Sultan prosecutes. Because judgment always has a prosecuting attorney and a defense attorney, the sultan is the prosecuting heavenly attorney. So automatically, when a person is judged, you have the sultan prosecuting and saying, what do you mean this person did this and he did that and so on? And there should be no leniencies. So then what's God going to do? He's doing the Jews a favor by informing them so they can influence the verdict. But the problem is that the idea of informing the Jews 
is good, but what it does is it makes the Sutton and everything, everybody aware that there's a judgment day. So the Sutton, of course, begins prosecuting. That is not a very good, uh, uh, you know, uh, occasion for the Jews that we have to face the Sutton, you see. <clears throat> so what it's going to do, he, he uh, introduces an instrument or a method how we can get around that, you see. And that method basically is the chauffeur. The magic of the chauffeur is that it puts aside the prosecutions of the sudden, you see. Because when we blow shofar, what we are really doing is crying and saying to God, please, you know, let us survive, even if what you have to do will involve crying or suffering, you see. So in many ways, the shofar itself is a request for one of the actions of God. It's called the Hanagas where God can employ a system that guarantees that the Jews will survive and be in Olim Habo. It's called a backup plan, you see. And God does that. He actually has the backup plan. And we request that. The problem is the backup plan that God uses is unknown how it works, you see. Nobody knows how that works. It's mysterious hanhogo, or series of actions that God does. And it, to us, there's no logic in it. I shouldn't say there's no logic, but rather, it's mysterious, you see. It's a complete mis- mystery. Because what it means is that evil people prosper. Evil people are tremendously successful. Good people do not prosper. Good people, righteous people, suffer tremendously. And none of this makes sense, you see. And all of it is in the service of engaging in a series of actions that will guarantee the Jews to survive. But we have to request it, you see. And we do. We actually request by using the shofar that he should activate the Anogah which is the series of actions that God does that guarantees the Jews will survive. And as a result of that, of course, God stands up, so to speak, and he leaves the courtroom, and he goes into his private courtroom, where he will then judge and evaluate the Jewish people. But there, what he does is... He, he involves what is necessary to help them survive. Because it's not a real judgment. It's an evaluation more than a judgment, you see. Uh, he evaluates each individual. What is the real assignment that they need that they will get the future world? It's a backup system. It's a guarantee. So in that sense, it's not a, a real judgment. What it really is, is an evaluation. How do I guarantee their survival and their existence in the future world? That's what the Anogun is, and that's the magic or the secret courtroom that God goes into as a result of the shofar. <clears throat> you see, and the reason why we can do that is because of what Avraham Avinu did Avraham Avinu did something which is incredible. There are many ideas in terms of the Akedah, what it means. But the greatest difficulty Avraham Avinu had was the logic of the Akedah. Why? Because God said, Your descendants will go through Yitzchak. Right? They will be the continuation of the Jewish people to do the Tikkun. This is a nevuah. This is a prophecy. So the question then is, how can God command Avraham Avinu to kill him? Obviously, dead people can't do anything. 
So that's very confusing. In fact, it's impossible. How can God issue a a prophecy? And when you turn around, the prophecy is what? It's contradicted by another prophecy, which is the exact opposite. In fact, they're mutually exclusive. If Yitzchak uh, survives, right? If Yitzchak is a descendant that the Jewish people have to go through, obviously you can't kill him. If God wants Aram Avinu to kill him, so he can't be a descendant. I mean, which is it? That's what bothered Avram Avinu. But Avram Avinu said to himself, listen, it doesn't make any sense. It's an exact contradiction. Now we know it wasn't because God didn't say kill Yitzchak. He said bring him up as an ola, as an offering. So Avram Avinu assumed that this offering, right, what do you do with an offering? You slaughter it. But that is not what God said. So really God never contradicted the, pro- the prophecy. But Avram Avinu didn't know that. He thought it's a contradiction. In other words, God appeared to Avram Avinu irrationally, as an irrational God. And irrationality is when something not just doesn't make any sense because we don't understand, it's unknown the reason, but it's, it's contradictory. It's what's called, you know, you can't have this and that at the same time, mutually exclusive. So Avram Avinu said, look, I don't understand what's going on, but if God commanded, there has to be an answer. So what Avram Avinu did is he did the Akedah, even though to him it was completely irrational, you see. So therefore, as a result of that, we have an incredible merit that we can ask God to save us employing a behavior which also appears to be irrational, mysterious. And that's the Anogasayichot, you see. So because of what Avram Avinu did, we can request that God act in a way which is irrational, even though, and that's called Anogasayichot, the attribute of oneness, which is completely unknown and it's mysterious, you see. So as a result of what he did, we have the right to request. And that's what God does. But we need to make the request, which is the Anogas HaYichud, you see. And I once gave a whole shir about what the Akedah really did and why it was necessary. But there's no question that the act of Avram Avinu was so great that it afforded us, right, uh, an unbelievable amount of merit for thousands of years to request the Anhodesiyichud. But we have to request it with the Shefer. You see? In fact, uh, the Gemara says that if this, a town or city does not put Shofar, right, uh, then they're going to have a very difficult time because they're not requesting the Anhodesiyichud. You see? So therefore we now understand we understand many questions, like I said. We understand what uh, it really is, uh, what your Hashanah your really is, that's Yom Hadin, right? But it's not Yom Hadin for an individual behavior. It's a Yom Hadin, right, for the Tikkun process, you see. We also understand not only that, the Tikkun process, but why everything is judged in the sense that Everything, right, is now evaluated in terms of where are they going to fit in the Tikkun process. See, so that is a very important concept, you see. Besides, we understand now also why we celebrate Rosh Hashanah as a holiday. The reason why we celebrate is because we are guaranteed when we blow shofar that we will survive in Oilam Habo, you see. And therefore we actually celebrate Yom Hadin because we are guaranteed to survive. <clears throat> you see, we also understand the meaning of Shafer, that because God wanted to inform the Jews of what he's doing, therefore, right, he told us so we can influence the verdict. 
you see. <clears throat> but that also alerts the Sutton, which is the prosecution. And that is why we have the Schaefer, you see. <clears throat> so therefore, we are now involved now with Jim Hadin, the Day of Judgment. Now what is very important <clears throat> is what do we want to do? <clears throat> so what we want to do, since we now understand the essential idea of Rosh Hashanah, we want to make sure that we are involved in the Tikkun process because that is the problem. When the Sultan prosecutes, what do you think he's saying? He's not saying only that we sin. What he's really saying is that this guy is not doing the Tikkun <clears throat> because that's really what, what you really want him to do. You see, <clears throat> he's not saying, well, he did this sin and this sin and this sin and so on, right? No. What he's really saying is this guy is not doing his assignment, which is his contribution in whatever area, to doing the tikkun. That's his argument. If that's the case, so of course we do tshuva on an individual sin. But what we're really doing is showing God that we want to contribute in the way that he assigned us to the tikkun process. And not only contribute, but to continue to contribute. And not only to, con to continue to, uh, to uh, contribute, to continue that, but to improve our opportunity of contributing more. You see, because there's no reward in this world. Reward is only for the next world, right? There's no scha mitzvah behai alma leka, as the Mishnah says. There is no reward for a mitzvah in this world for many reasons. <clears throat> you know, obviously, because the reward of a single mitzvah is infinite. So how could you have an infinite reward in this world? You see, only in Oilem Habo are you able to have reward and so on. But in any case, so therefore, if we are being judged, right, not, not on the individual sin, because, but be, rather because that individual sin means that we are not doing our assignment toward advancing the rectification process, then our real tshuva is we have to say to God, we want to get back into rectifying creation. You know? And not only that, like I said, but we want to continue and please even improve our situation. For instance, make, make me sure that I'm healthy and that I have money because all of this will give me even greater opportunities to do mitzvahs, which will certainly help me continue doing the deacon process. Now you understand the logic of what our tshuva has to be. It has to be not just that we're sorry we did an avera, a sin. No. What we want to tell God is we want to be part of your team. We want to contribute to the tikkun as best as possible. So of course I'm going to try to rectify my actions. But what God wants to know, are we still part of the team? Are we still on his side? Right? Are we still involved in the effort to bring God back? That's what he really wants. And I've mentioned many times that there's a Raivad, which is a Rosh Hashanah, Rabbi Avram ben Dovid, the one who argues with the Rambam, and that he said in the end, that's what God wants to know. Are you going to be part of my team? And I showed you there was a proof that Moshe Rabbeinu, when the Jews sinned at the golden calf, he didn't say, you know, who sinned at the golden calf, or who didn't, or whatever. He said, Mila Shem, who is to God, Eli, come to me. That's the problem. Where do you stand? Where do you hold? You know, are you still part of the team? part of the group, part of the working force that is involved in doing the tikkun, of course, as best you can, right? Or no, that's what he said, Moshe Rabbeinu, Mil Hashem, Eli, who is the God? Eli, come to me. And you see, so what you see, <clears throat> that was really Moshe Rabbeinu's concern. Not only, of course, that you're sorry you did the sin of the golden calf, right? But that, how does it affect your entire 
contribution, you see, to the whole concept of bringing God back. That's the main tshuva that you should do on Rosh Hashanah. And we are now in the Aser Semei Tshuva in the 10 days of repentance, right? And especially for Yom Kippur, which I will talk about later on. But the main idea, this is the tshuva. But you understand what the logic is. Because God wants to know, so to speak, and He certainly wants to hear it from you. Are you part of my team? Are you part of that, those people, work group, that want to bring me back, right? That want to rid the world of the barrier, you see? That's what He wants to hear. And therefore, you must say, yes, I sin, which is true. I slip, I fall, and so on. But in the end, look, I try. That's all. But all I want is to, to continue the opportunity to keep doing the mitzvahs or the tshuva or whatever to bring you back, you see, and to usher in the messianic age. That's the tshuva you have to ask yourself. And what does that mean in practical terms? What it means is that uh, you have to think about spirituality and not physicality. In fact, you can get up in the morning and say, what am I going to do today, right? That is a mitzvah, or that is going to increase the spirituality in my life. What am I going to do today? Am I going to give a shir? Am I going to listen to a lecture on Torah? <coughs> am I going to spend time Torah? You see? Am I going to spend time learning Torah, doing mitzvahs, doing chesed, dawn. Am I going to do that? Or am I going to waste my time, right? Playing around with the internet, playing around with all kinds of, you know, uh, um, smartphones. You know, all the nonsense of this world. That's what you have to ask yourself, you see. You need to change the focus of your direction to a spiritual direction. That will be the greatest tshuva of all. If you do that, there's no question that you will be among those people in the future world, right? That will be all part of the, the messianic era and you will be at the dais, right? When the Mashiach comes as those people who are responsible to bring God back into creation. You will change the direction, focus of your life into spirituality and ask yourself, what can I do today that's spiritual? And not just make more money or have more pleasure or go out to a great restaurant or whatever. I mean, even if you do that, it's one thing, but that that should be the focus. There are so many Jews that, of course, they do things which are spiritual. But here's the mistake. That's not their focus, really. Their focus is to do what? It's to engage in physicality, right? Money, right? Uh, you, you know, all kinds of uh, commitments, entertainment, you know, rest, restaurants, uh, sports. That's their focus. Then there's also some time left over for some mitzvahs. No. The real way to do it is that the focus should be only ruchnias. And if you have to engage in things which are physical, so you do that because there are many things you have to take care of your physical needs. But that is secondary, not primary, you see. So what I'm saying is even if you decide or you do things which are spiritual, which there are many people that do, but it's not their primary focus, you see. It's of secondary importance. And God knows that. He knows that because he can read the mind of people. You see, the greater your intent, the greater your focus, the greater the direction of your life, that's the greater commitment to bring God back. You see, and in the end, that's the tshuva that you want to do. Besides each individual sin, but the real mitzvah, the real tshuva is to make spirituality 
the primary focus of your life and therefore always seek to do mitzvahs. And if you do that, then ultimately speaking, you cannot believe what your status will be in the Messianic era. <coughs> Any questions? Yes. So let's say um, on Rosh Hashanah, you're judged to, God forbid, uh, not make it that year. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So does that mean that your process, you you finished your mission of your tikkun, or that you're not, you, you, you have no, what is it, like, Hashem doesn't need you anymore, or you're, you don't help, you can't <coughs> help, or you didn't help enough this year. How does it work? Well, if a person is judged to die, that's what you obviously are referring to, <clears throat> what it means is that either he has completed what he was supposed to do, or even if he didn't, God decides that it's not worthwhile for him to continue in this particular circumstance. So what God will do is take him and bring him back, reincarnate him as a Gilgo to begin another life uh, with a different type of assignment, you see. And that's why, and so he comes back with another assignment, another circumstance, situation, you know, new, 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 new job, new everything, you know. But and God makes that decision. Is it because... Um because you said that um, Hashem, He sees what he, uh, he gives each person to guarantee His existence in the future world. So, yes. is it because his, his past life, the past life, whatever the life he was living, wasn't guaranteeing him that so <coughs> he had to die in order to have a new one to. Yeah, that? that's yeah, that's usually the case. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it could be because he he has come back many times. So now, you know, he's basically completed what he was supposed to do. So he doesn't have to engage in the test. You know, it could be. But probably more often than not, especially in the end of time where we are now, we are at the end of time. And incarnations probably is not the way to go. Probably those people who die, die as they are and that's it. They've done whatever tikkun they can do, whether it be uh, through mitzvahs, tshuva, yisurin, <clears throat> and therefore th- that's it, you know. Look, you have to remember, even if a person is guaranteed, it just means he's guaranteed his, a reward in the future world. But what's the level of reward, you see? So you can't keep coming back as an infinite amount of times, you see, in, in the terms of the, the level you granted only a certain amount of times to come back to increase the level of your reward. The main thing is that you come back to exist. So that you can come back over and over again until you make it into Ilm Habo, you see. So that God wants to guarantee you that you will be a member of Ilm Habo, of the future world. But what's your level of existence in the future world, that has a certain finite answer. You know, you can only come back a certain amount of times to determine the level. But you come back as often as you can to determine your existence. You see, there's a difference in what the objective is. So, if we're getting judged on Rosh Hashanah, for uh, our tikkun process and our mission, then on yeah. a daily on a daily process, when our soul goes up when we're sleeping, that's when we're getting judged for our sins during that day. Oh uh, yeah, right. Those are like like uh, micro uh, corrections. You know, the real correction takes place on Rosh Hashanah. <clears throat> But there are always minor adjustments. You know, if a person sins, so God says, I want to bring you a kapora now. I don't want to involve changing your status on Yom Hadin, on Rosh Hashanah. 
changing your assignment. You see, so God's not going to change your assignment. He's going to correct you in terms of an individual sin or whatever. And he makes that determination. You see? So you're really being evaluated and corrected on a daily basis. Right. If a person sins, God punishes him. So he's corrected on that basis. But a major correction is what takes place on Rosh Hashanah. Because it involves the whole purpose of creation, not merely what you did in that purpose. You see. So the whole now they say there's three books opened, and you know you which which book you'll be written in. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So let's say you you're written in the in that middle book, the Benoni book, the the one that's like not here or there. So yeah. when now that's the that's the attendees now that helps Hashem decide what book you're going to end up being in. Yes. So what do you what is these ten D's, and does it is it ten D's because it's according to the ten sefirot? What is the ten the ten D's now? Well, that's really, yeah, that, that's really what it is. Uh, the assessment tshuva is really uh, a rectification for each sphera that you help bring down. You know, uh, yeah. So really, it, it does. Uh, it, it is. Uh, applicable to the ten spheres. Yes, that's true. Because remember, a Jew's acts influences all the spheres because you're connected to all the Elamas, all the worlds, of which there are five, and you are connected, therefore, to all the spheres of all the Elamas, you know, in a certain way. And that's your assignment. So, therefore, those ten days are the ten days of, uh, of the ten days of the spheres that you're connected to, right? So what do we do on the 10 days in your, you know, what should you, what do you think we should be doing? Well, like I said, I think uh, it's like a person wants to, a person should be thinking about what do I want to change this year? And like I, I suggested, you know, that even if you do mitzvahs, which most people do, hopefully, uh, the, the question is, is that your primary focus or secondary? And there's a big difference in terms of your, your attitude, the person's attitude, you know, how serious he is when he does a mitzvah. How much will he give up? How much mysterious nefesh will he have? You know, everything is determined by where on your value list is it? Is it prior, secondary, tertiary, and so on, you see? And a person has to reevaluate his own direction in life, his own purpose in life. What does he really want to do, you see? And that's really what you have to evaluate. In many ways, it's called a cheshbon hanefesh. You know, you want to reckon, make a cheshbon, an accounting of your soul, you know, of where you want to go. The problem is many people don't do that. They don't think about their goal, how the time spent in the goal. You know, they're too busy thinking about, well, let me correct this sin and that sin. Sinning is one thing, you know, but the goals that you have is another. And in the end, this is serious business. A person should evaluate their goals. You know, how much time do I want to put, you know, for learning we're doing this mitzvah, that mitzvah, and how important is it for me, and so on. And that person should strive to maintain that. It's really a cheshben nefesh It's really, it's an accounting of where are you, really? Where are you in terms of the avodah, the work, the service of tikkun? You know, that's really what a person... When they recommend us to take on a new mitzvah or to work on it to perfect a mitzvah better. Yeah. But that but that's that's technically only picking on one thing. Whereas you're really going more of a of like a <coughs> your life purpose. More right, yeah. I mean you could do both. Yeah, you could do both. 
Look, a person also has to evaluate himself in terms of his talents. Some people are talented in a certain way, you see. So if they want to take on this type of mitzvah, it means that they're talented. They have an attraction to that type of mitzvah, you know. There are people excel in different things. Some people excel in learning. Some excel in teaching, you see. Some excel in, uh, in Hashkofa or giving Musa. Some excel in Chesed. Each person has what's called his, you know, his preference. So a person can say to himself, you know, well, what do I really want to do preferentially, you see? So there's a lot that goes into, you know, what, what direction should a person go? Like I say, you know, a lot of it is talent-oriented. You see. Okay, so now, so this this next ten days, we have to reevaluate our life on a bigger, broad spectrum of like right. where it's going. Okay. <clears throat> exactly. Then, right. Then Yom, Yom Kippur comes, and we're, we're we're telling Hashem, I reevaluated my life. Um, I'm trying to focus it more on serving you, being your, you know, a missionary in this world, glorifying right. your name. Great. Now Yom Kippur comes, and what am I supposed to be thinking that day? Well, Yom Kippur is a day that you say you're committed. Yom Kippur is the finalization of what you've been thinking about for nine days. <clears throat> and Yom Kippur is a day that you're forgiven. Whatever process, whatever there was against you, you know, is is null and void. So you are forgiven for any of the damage that you've done, and you've also committed and finalized your mission. What is your mission? What do you really want to do? And that takes a lot of things into consideration: your talents, your successes, you know, what's available to you, and so on. So should we pray, be praying to Hashem if we don't know exactly what our mission is, obviously? Yeah, so of course, yes, you can. The answer is yes. Can Hashem show us it? Yeah, yes, pray to God. Please show me what you would like me to do in terms of my assignment in the Tikkun process. Oh, yeah, of course. Definitely. Okay. 